It is not rare for the Security Council to express views on the question whether certain conduct constitutes an internationally wrongful act or entails certain legal consequences. When the Security Council supersedes, it does not act as an adjudicator between the states that may have a dispute. Nor does the United Nations Charter grant the Security Council a power to adjudicate, and that even under Chapter 7. When the Council says something about whether a state has infringed an obligation or deals with the legal consequences of an infringement, it mainly does that for the purpose of um, taking action with regard to any dispute, the continuance of which is likely to endanger the maintenance of international peace and security, according to Article 33, or else uh, any threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression. This is from Article 39 of the Charter. However, whether the Security Council say something which is instrumental with regard to one of those functions or, or not. The fact that a resolution has been adopted concerning a certain dispute may impinge on the application of the law of state responsibility. There are some practical, if not legal, consequences of a resolution, uh, particularly becomes politically difficult for a state party to the dispute to maintain when the Security Council expresses the contrary view that no wrongful act was committed or that there is no duty to make reparation. The significance of an assessment by the Security Council is enhanced when the Council might eventually use its powers under the Charter to uh, recommend some further actions to the states or impose uh, some obligation. But even if that eventuality is unlikely, the sheer indication by the Security Council of its views on the merits of a dispute is likely to have a certain importance, so much so that it would be an appropriate step for the Security Council to follow when it intends to assess the existence of a wrongful act or its consequences, some procedural rules designed to gather, to let the Council gather as much as possible uh, information regarding the dispute and also take account of the views expressed by the states concerned. There is one example I would like to give of uh, a Security Council resolution that, although not binding, has had some uh, 
a great impact on the on the parties to the dispute. This is Resolution 138 of 1960, related to the abduction of the Nazi criminal Adolf, Adolf Heichmann from Argentina. Uh, the preamble of this resolution noted uh, the violation of the sovereignty of Argentina in the operative part. The Security Council requested the government of Israel to make appropriate reparation in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations and the rules of international law. This resolution was not written as a binding text. It has assessed the existence of a breach of an obligation under international law and outlined its legal consequence, albeit in general terms. The settlement of the dispute was left to negotiation between the parties to the dispute, and this duly occurred. Security Council resolution may produce also some legal effects on issues relating to state responsibility. This will be the object of my analysis. I would like to start with uh, um, a reference to the, a provision which is contained in the draft articles on the state responsibility that the International Commission ad adopted in 2001. Article 59 of the, those articles addresses um, part of the problem by stating that these articles, that is the articles on state responsibility, are without prejudice to the Charter of the United Nations. In the first reading of the Articles on State Responsibility in 1996, the International Law Commission had adopted a different text which said that the legal consequences of an international wrongful act of a state state out in the provisions of this part are subject as appropriate to the provisions and procedures of the Charter of the United Nations relating to the maintenance of international peace and security. The part to which this text referred was headed content, forms and degrees of international responsibility. The text adopted in 2001 by the International Law Commission on second reading applies to the whole draft on state responsibility, not just to one part of it. On the other hand, the reference that the first reading text made, that is a reference to provision and, pro and procedures of the Charter, was vague and arguably much wider. He could have subjected the law of state responsibility to actions by the Security Council and also by the General Assembly in a way that uh, the United Nations Charter would have uh, hardly warranted. True, the, the reference was coupled with one to the maintenance of international peace and security but this is not really very restrictive given the way in which uh, the concept of maintenance of international peace and uh, security is uh, often understood in United Nations practice. 
I would like to quote once again the text adopted in 2001. He says, these articles are without prejudice to the Charter of the United Nations. This is a rather cryptic provision, basically intended to avoid interferences by the law on state responsibility with the functions that the United Nations organs have for maintaining peace. The commentary written by the International Commission on Article 59 refers to Article 103 of the United Nations Charter, according to which in the event of a conflict between the obligations of the members of the United Nations under the present Charter and their obligations under any other international agreement, their obligations under the present Charter shall prevail. This provision is widely understood as covering the conflict between obligation under both treaties and general international law and obligations set forth in the Charter. But what is of interest for the sake of the present analysis is whether the obligation stops at the Charter, whether the obligation also covers decisions that the Security Council takes on the basis of the Charter. Uh, the Commission, International Law Commission, noted that the focus of Article 103 is on treaty obligation inconsistent with obligation arising under the Charter, but such conflicts can have an incidence on issues dealt with in the Articles, as for example in the Lockerbie case. Uh, the Commission therefore gives an affirmative answer, but I think it's useful to dwell on some moments on the Lockerbie case where the International Court of Justice addressed for the first and only time the issue whether Article 103 of the UN Charter covers Security Council resolution. This was in an order on provisional measures given in 1992. The court considered the impact of a Security Council resolution, that is Resolution 748, which was a binding decision on, in the relevant part on the obligations under the Montreal Convention for the suppression of unlawful acts against the safety and of civil aviation. I quote from uh, uh, the order which was given in the case between the Libya and United Kingdom. There was a parallel order which contained similar language in, uh, in the proceedings between Libya and the United States. The court used the typical language of uh, interim measures uh, starting sentences with whereas, and so uh, uh, quoting this, I must start myself with whereas and say that whereas both Libya and the United Kingdom, as members of the United Nations, are obliged to accept and carry out the decisions of the Security Council in accordance with Article 25 of the Charter, whereas the court, which is at the stage of proceedings on provisional measures, considers that prima facie the, this obligation extends to the decision contained in Resolution 748, 
And whereas, in accordance with Article 103 of the Charter, the obligations of the parties in that respect prevail over their obligation under any other international agreement, including the Montreal Convention. Well, leaving the whereases at where they are, uh, this order clearly stated that in principle binding resolution of the Security Council prevail over treaty obligations that member state may have. Well, when we come to the application of this to the case in hand, resolution had requested in its binding part Libya to surrender to uh, accused who were suspected of having committed a crime um, envisaged in the Montreal Convention. Well, no doubt the, this resolution impinged on the relief sought by Libya, which was to enjoin the United Kingdom from taking any action against Libya calculated to coerce or compel Libya to surrender the accused individuals to any jurisdiction outside of Libya. However, the Security Council resolution ugly did not affect any obligation under the Montreal Convention because the Montreal Convention, in its Article 8, did not impose an obligation to surrender the two accused. I mean, Libya could refuse it because of the nationality. These two people had uh, Libyan nationality. However, it did not even put an obligation on the United Kingdom not to seek extradition. Nor was the Security Council impinging on rights that uh, Libya would have had under the Convention. So arguably, perhaps it wasn't the situation it was necessary for the Security Council to, um, for the court to say um, uh, something about the binding resolution of the Security Council. But the court did so, and uh, it definitely reflects the view that Article 103 of the Charter makes it so that treaty obligations are trumped by obligation both under the Charter and under Security Council decisions. The binding effect of uh, these decisions is based on the Charter. Therefore, if one takes on 103 and covers obligation under the Charter, it indirectly also covers resolutions, uh, binding resolutions taken under um, the Charter. Um, one may thus infer that Security Council decision generally prevail over obligations under the law of state responsibility. Thus, a decision may relieve a state from having to comply with one of its obligations under international law. It may also impose consequence for a certain conduct that do not necessarily coincide with those flowing from general international law in view of the responsibility that the state may have incurred. With regard to the latter case, the commentary of the International Law Commission on Article 59 on state responsibility stated that the competent organs of the United Nations have often recommended or required that compensation be paid following conduct by a state characterized as a breach of international obligations. And noted that Article 103 may have a role to play in such cases. 
perhaps the examples are not as numerous as the Commission would have it, but there are some examples, and I would just refer to one of them, that is Security Council Resolution 687, which reaffirmed that uh, Iraq is, I quote, is liable under international law for any direct loss, damage, including environmental damage and depleting, depletion of natural resources, or injury to foreign governments, nationals and corporations as a result of Iraq's unlawful invasion and occupation of Kuwait. The resolution then went on to say to create a fund to pay compensation for claims that fall within the previous paragraph, establish a commission that would administer the fund and that there was a governing council of that Commission, which apparently did not consider the fact that of addressing a claim to the Commission would preclude any further claim. But uh, the Security Council could have said otherwise, could have said that that would be the only way to get the claim reparation. The relations within the obligations under the law of state responsibility and Security Council resolution potentially affecting those obligations do not seem capable of being resolved on the basis of Article 103 of the United Nations Charter when the resolution do not contain binding decisions. The Charter provision only refers to obligations and those resolutions do not impose obligations. Thus it means that in order not to place the member states under conflicting obligation, the Security Council would be restricted in its action for maintaining peace by the need not to recommend to member states any conduct that may result in an infringement of an obligation under international law. One could uh, find that uh, an affirmative answer would uh, severely curtail the Security Council's entitlement to make a significant use of its powers to recommend action under Chapter 7 of the Charter. This concern has um, led some authors to suggest that Article 103 of the United Na Nations Charter in spite of its restricting wording, which refers only to obligations, also provides that the recommendation or an authorization by the Security Council would result in the fact that uh, the recommendation or authorization prevails over obligations under treaties or under general international law, and, uh, and thus may also prevail over obligations existing under the law of state responsibility. I would like to make, give a quotation of these views. It's uh, uh, an extract, short extract, from uh, uh, an article written by two German authors, uh, Frowein and Krisch. They argued as follows. One could conclude that in case a state is not obliged but merely authorized to take action, it remains bound by its conventional obligations, that is, obligations under treaty law. Such a result, however, 
would not seem to correspond with the state practice, at least in regards authorization of military action. These authorizations have not been opposed on the ground of conflicting treaty obligations. If they could be opposed on this basis, the very idea of authorization as a necessary substitute for direct action by the Security Council would be compromised. Thus, interpretation of Article 103 should be recognized, reconciled with that of Article 42, and the prevalence of a treaty obligation should be recognized for the authorization of military action as well. And then they argue that the same should apply with authorization of uh, economic measures under Article 41. Um, this uh, opinion has been quoted in extenso, even a longer passages than the one I just read. In uh, an opinion expressed in the House of Lords judgment in al in December 2007 by Lord Bingham of Cornhill. And uh, he added at the end of this long quotation, this approach seems to me to give a purposive interpretation to Article 103 of the Charter in the context of its other provisions and to reflect the practice of the UN and member states as it has developed over the past 60 years. There's um, the policy argument was stressed by uh, Professor Michael Riesman in an article in the American Journal. This may the, the, my last quotation from uh, an author and that it's quite brief. He said that uh, if the rules of the game allow the target state that its option to trump the council by initiating an action in another order on the basis of treaty or customary law, so long as an explicit chapter seven decision has not been taken, the council must escalate immediately to the decision level of chapter seven. Well, this policy argument is certainly impressive uh, however, uh, uh, it's difficult to interpret Article 103 of the Charter as covering also recommendations or authorization when it expressly refers to obligations under the Charter. And I would like to add that in the Lockerbie case, the International Court of Justice appeared to make a distinction between what was a binding decision uh, the one adopted in Resolution 748, the obligation to surrender the two suspects, and a previous recommendation made by the Security Council to the same effect, that was Resolution 731. Uh, the court said that whatever the situation previous to the adoption of Resolution 748, the rights claimed by, Libyan, by Libya under the Montreal Convention cannot now be regarded as appropriate for protection by the indication of provisional measures. Well, this seems to convey that according to the court, although in the language which characteristic of provisional measures, there is a difference, and uh, the court was not really prepared to say that what uh, it accepted with regard to obligations, binding resolution, would be, could be extended with to recommendation. Now, I think there, there must be some kind of middle ground we can, uh, one could seek, and uh, my suggestion is that um, 
uh, although one cannot find in Article 103 a basis for coming to the conclusion that as if uh, the resolution had uh, been a, the binding resolution, a, a binding decision in the usual terminology, the uh, content of a resolution would prevail over uh, obligations under international law. One could still use recommendation and authorizations contained in Security Council resolutions to the effect of justifying a breach of obligation under international law. In, in other words, the obligation would stay on, would not be trumped by the Security Council resolutions. On the other hand, a state following the recommendation or using the authorization would not commit a wrongful act. There would be, in other words, a circumstance uh, precluding wrongfulness of, of, of the act. There would be a justification for non-compliance by a member state of one of its obligations. This justification would generally be only of a temporary nature. It could affect compliance both with the primary obligation or with obligation concerning the content of uh, responsibility. How far does this go? How far can one say that uh, a recommendation or authorization justifies the conduct of a state following the recommendation? Well, the question has been discussed in uh, judicial practice with regard to military and civilian personnel contribute by state to a peacekeeping or peace enforcement operation and also to forces uh, taking part in an action authorized by the Security Council. To the extent that the conduct of the state organs in question has to be attributed to the contributing state or that that state for some other on some other basis is responsible for that contact, does the fact that the state was contributing to collective security on the basis of a Security Council resolution, resolution exonerate the state from complying with uh, certain obligations under international law? In uh, the Berami and Saramati cases in 2007, the European Court of Human Rights went a bit too far in uh, this direction when it held. Um, I quote, since operation established by the Security Council resolution under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter uh, fundamental to the mission of the United Nations to secure international peace and security and since we rely for their effectiveness on support from member states the European Convention on Human Rights cannot be interpreted in a manner which would subject the acts or omissions of contracting parties which are covered by United Nations Security Council resolutions and occur 
prior to or in the course of such missions to the scrutiny of the court. To do so would be to interfere with the fulfillment of the United Nations key mission in this field, including, as argued by certain parties, with the effective conduct of its operation. This uh, passage referred both to decisions and to authorization as a case of uh, K4 related to UNMIC, which is uh, 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 civil and administrative presence of the United Nations in Kosovo and to K4, which is the military authorized force. It referred to exam an exemption from the scrutiny of the court, technically, not from the obligation, but in substance what the court did was to consider that the possible existence of an obligation under the convention would not be relevant when the action had taken place in the course of an, an authorized mission. Moreover, the, the court appeared to exempt from scrutiny, that is to justify derogations from all the acts and omissions attributed to a state in the course of uh, its participation to UNMIC or K4. However, even supposing that the Security Council resolution authorizing a certain conduct had the effect of derogating from obligations under the Convention, this could not be a blanket derogation applying to any action taken by a state in the course of an authorized mission, but would operate only so far as the derogation in question was provided for, albeit implicitly, by the Security Council resolution. It may well be that uh, for the efficiency of a military operation, the fact of not having to comply with certain international obligations would be helpful. But uh, this kind of justification, as, as uh, seems to have been endorsed by the European Court of Human Rights in Beramin Saramati, would involve also that some unnecessary infringement take place. Um, the case of Saramati concerned the alleged uh, keeping in, in prison, in detention, for an indefinite period of a person without trial. And that was something that took place during an authorized mission, but certainly had not been specifically authorized. It would be different if uh, we could have other examples from Security Council resolutions, like an authorization to a state to uh, control the, um, the respect of a trade embargo by stopping merchant ships over the high seas. I mean, that would be something very specific if that state would follow the, uh, the resolution and stop the merchant ships, it would do just what the Security Council requested. But that is not what seems to be implied by the Berami and Saramati judgment. There is another perspective under which, and that's the last perspective, under which the Security Council resolutions would have to be considered and can be said to have an impact on the uh, state responsibility. Uh, the Security Council may contribute to the implementation of responsibility 
arising for a state under obligations uh, deriving from the breach of, uh, an, uh, of a duty that the state has towards the international community as a whole. Uh, binding or non-binding Security Council resolution may concern what the International Law Commission called in the State Responsibility Articles in Article 40 as a breach of an obligation arising under a peremptory norm of general international law. Article 41 of the same article sets forth that states shall cooperate to bring to an end through lawful means any such serious breach. The commentary by the Commission on the latter article just noted that cooperation could be organized in the framework of a competent international organization, in particular the United Nations. However, paragraph one also envisages possibility of non-institutionalized cooperation. So the the articles envisage that there is a role for the United Nations to play. It's not the necessary role. And I think what is interesting to note is those articles do not confer on any international organization, including the United Nations, powers that the, the organization do not already possess. The comment refers to the powers that the Security Council and the General Assembly has in case of aggression. Um, the Security Council may use, and uh, he has done that on various occasions also, uh, the concept of threat to the peace in order to respond to breaches of obligations under international law, which are only indirectly related to the maintenance of peace and security. Certainly, there is a lacuna in the Charter to the extent that only serious powers are given to the Security Council in the, in the field of maintenance of peace and security, while there are other areas in which the United Nations is supposed to protect general interests, but there is no corresponding power to be given. So the Security Council has been extensively using since uh, the big changes in 1991 uh, of um, its powers for, um, for maintenance of peace for some other ends and protect those other general interests. So the Security Council has a way to respond to these serious breaches of general of obligation towards the international community of states. Well, should the Security Council exercise powers by organizing cooperation for bringing the breach to an end, the relevant resolution would implement responsibility. It would uh, have an impact on the law state responsibility, and it could also be designed as exclusive. That depends on the resolution. Uh, that could, may establish that the response of the Security Council would be the only one that would be admitted. Uh, as a final uh, note, I would like to say something about the fact that uh, what I have um, said about resolution by the Security Council presupposes the validity of those resolutions. 
Article 59 of the Articles of State Responsibility by stating that these articles are without prejudice to the Charter of the United Nations is consistent with the idea that validity of a Security Council resolution constitutes a necessary requirement. The fact that this provision refers to the United Nations Charter may be taken as an indication that according to the International Law Commission, the facts of Security Council resolution on the law of state responsibility depend on the resolutions being adopted in accordance uh, with, uh, with the Charter. Uh, the question here is not just whether the validity of Security Council resolution can be tested under any kind of criteria. These are the criteria provided by the United Nations Charter and United oh, and International Law. But even if one restricts this to this area, we uh, are confronting a complex question that cannot be examined. In in the present moment, um, even if validity may have to be considered as a condition for a resolution to produce its intended effects. Thank you.